Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 10th, 2023. President Joe Biden orders a high-altitude unidentified object over Alaska to be shot down. Officials at the White House and Pentagon not confirming that it was a balloon, where it came from, or what the intention of its maker was, but saying it was at an altitude that made it a potential threat to civilian aircraft. And this comes less than a week after a U.S. fighter jet shot down a Chinese surveillance balloon after it had floated across Alaska and then across the continental United States. White House says President Biden will be traveling to Poland on February 20th to discuss collective efforts to support Ukraine and bolster NATO's deterrence. That date is just a few days before the anniversary of Russia's invasion. The president of Brazil visiting the White House to talk about climate change and democracy after last year's insurrection in Brazil's capital city, a scene that reminded many of the attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. The U.S. architect of the Capitol under fire for intentionally staying away from Capitol Hill during that January 6th attack. We'll talk about that and alleged ethics violations against the architect of the Capitol with CQ Roll Call congressional reporter Justin Papp. President Biden hosting state governors at the White House today, highlighting areas of economic bipartisanship, such as infrastructure spending, but also again emphasizing his priorities when it comes to federal spending, calls for deficit reduction, and the need to raise the debt ceiling. And friendly Super Bowl wagers between governors and members of Congress from Pennsylvania and Missouri, with Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs set to meet for the title on Sunday. We start at the White House and the confirmation that the U.S. military shot down an unknown object flying at high altitude off the coast of Alaska on the orders from President Joe Biden. Associated Press writing it was the second time in a week U.S. officials had downed some type of flying object over the U.S. On Saturday night, jets shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina. White House officials drew major differences between the two episodes. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said it wasn't yet known who owned the object, and he did not say that it was a balloon. Officials also couldn't say if there was any surveillance equipment on it. He also didn't know yet where it came from or what its purpose was. That from AP. Here's John Kirby with reporters at the White House. Can you speak to rumors that there is another Chinese balloon above Alaska or any other parts of U.S. territory that the U.S. shot down? So I can confirm that the Department of Defense was tracking a high-altitude object over Alaska airspace in the last 24 hours. Out, uh, the, uh, the object was flying at an altitude of uh, 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. 
Out of an abundance of caution and at the recommendation of the Pentagon, President Biden ordered the military to down the object. And they did. And it came in inside our territorial waters. Now, those waters right now are frozen, but inside uh, territorial uh, airspace and over territorial waters. Fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command took down the object within the last hour. John Kirby is Strategic Communications Coordinator for the National Security Council today in the White House briefing room. Right after he confirmed this second high-altitude object shot down by a U.S. military, reporters had a lot more questions. Another aircraft of some sort, airship, balloon, something was shot down today. Who owns it? What were the circumstances? Was the president directly involved in ordering this? Uh, and is wreckage being recovered? Well, or... Kate, so I'm going to try. Okay. Remind me if I forget something. Okay. Yes, the president absolutely was involved in this decision. He ordered it uh, at the recommendation of Pentagon leaders. Uh, he wanted it taken down, and they did that. They did it using fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command. The Pentagon will have more to say about the details of this uh, later on this afternoon. It's only just within the last hour. Uh, we're calling this an object because that's the best description we have right now. Uh, we do not know who owns it, uh, whether it's, it's state-owned or, or, or corporate-owned or privately-owned. We just don't know. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. As I said, state-owned. We don't know if it's state-owned. Um, and we don't uh, understand the full purpose. We don't, have any comp we don't have any information that would confirm a stated purpose for this object. Um, we do expect to be able to recover uh, the debris, uh, since it fell not only within our territorial space, but on what we what we uh, believe is is frozen uh, water. So, uh, it, uh, a recovery effort will be made, um, and uh, uh, we're hopeful that it'll be successful. And then we can learn a little bit more about it. Was its appearance like the Chinese aircraft? No, it was. It, it was much, much smaller than uh, the spy balloon that we took down last Saturday. Um, the way it was described to me was roughly the size of a small car, as opposed to uh, a payload that was like two or three buses size, right? So much, much smaller, um, uh, and um, and there and not of the same, not not. Uh, no, um, no significant payload, if you will. John Kirby is spokesperson for the National Security Council with reporters today in the White House briefing room. As he mentioned, when he was finished, the Pentagon held a briefing and the press secretary there, Pat Ryder, started off on the balloon. Uh, so first of all, to add to information already provided earlier by the White House, at the direction of the President of the United States, fighter aircraft assigned to U.S. Northern Command successfully took down a high-altitude airborne object off the northern coast of Alaska at 1.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today within U.S. sovereign airspace over U.S. territorial water. On February 9, North American Aerospace Defense Command detected an object on ground radar and further investigated and identified the object using fighter aircraft. The object was flying at an altitude of 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. U.S. Northern Command is beginning recovery operations now. U.S. Northern Command's Alaska Command coordinated the operation with assistance from the Alaska Air National Guard, 
Federal Aviation Administration and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We have no further details about the object at this time, including any description of its capabilities, purpose, or origin. The object was about the size of a small car, so not similar in size or shape to the high-altitude surveillance balloon that was taken down off the coast of South Carolina on February 4. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, also an Air Force Brigadier General, part of his opening statement at today's news conference at the Pentagon. When it got to questions, a reporter asked him why this latest object was shot down over Alaska when that previous Chinese spy balloon was not. What made this threatening enough to shoot down? What is different about this object than the last object that was over Alaska because it was chosen not to shoot the last one down over Alaska? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the important thing to understand here is anytime we detect anything, we're going to, uh, first of all, observe it and then make a decision and take appropriate action. So you have to look at each individual case on its own merits. In this particular case, uh, given the fact that it was operating at an altitude that posed a reasonable threat to civilian uh, air traffic, the determination was made and the president gave the order to take it down. Was there a specific threat, a a specific civilian air traffic incident that could have happened? Again, uh, as you well know, civilian aircraft operate, you know, at a a variety of ranges up to 40 to 45,000 feet. So, again, there was a reasonable concern that this could present uh, present, uh, a threat to or a potential hazard to civilian air traffic. So let me... Has Secretary Austin reached out to his Chinese counterpart or any other counterparts at all uh, since this has been tracked? Since this particular object? No. The Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder with reporters in the Pentagon briefing room. The U.S. House and Senate not in session today for business. Some reaction to this latest shootdown of an object from members of Congress. Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican from Alaska, sending out a series of tweets. Here are two of them. I appreciate the senior Defense Department officials who briefed me this morning on the sighting of this latest object, as I've been doing for the past week, including in a classified briefing with senior Pentagon officials yesterday. I strongly encourage the NORTHCOM commander this morning to shoot down this latest unidentified intrusion into Alaska airspace. I commend them for doing so today. Congressman Jason Crow, Democrat from Colorado, tweeting the administration is monitoring this closely, and I look forward to an update on the latest incursion into our airspace. We will not tolerate violations of our sovereignty or that of our allies. And Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, with this tweet, they just shot down an object over Alaskan frozen waters. Thank you for defending our country, but this proves all of their excuses about last week's Chinese spy balloon was BS. Just like I told them in the briefing, defend our homeland at all costs. Meanwhile, recovery efforts continue for the other high-altitude object, the Chinese spy balloon, shot down in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of South Carolina. The State Department deputy spokesperson, Vedanta Patel, asked today on a teleconference with reporters about reports that Chinese companies connected to that balloon may soon be sanctioned. Let's go to the line of Shannon Crawford uh, from ABC News. Question about the payload. Officials believe from that balloon that they discovered the payload. Does the State Department anticipate that if indeed it's recovered and officials can analyze perhaps where the parts of the balloon, the other equipment that was being carried by the balloon over the United States, that might put the State Department closer to being able to take action against the companies that supported the PLA's uh, surveillance mission? Will that move the ball forward in any way? 
Uh, let me say a couple of things to that, Shannon. First, uh, as you know, there's an ongoing operation to recover uh, the balloon's components. Uh, we're analyzing them uh, to learn more about the surveillance program, but I certainly uh, don't want to uh, get ahead of that process and would refer you to the entities involved uh, in the recovery. Um, more broadly, though, the, the United States sent a clear message uh, to China that its uh, violation of our sovereignty was unacceptable. Uh, we made that clear by shooting down uh, this balloon, uh, protecting our own sensitive intelligence, and maximizing our ability to track the balloon and recover the payload to get more information uh, on the PRC's program. Uh, the United States is also exploring taking action against PRC entities linked to the PLA that supported the balloon's incursion into U.S. airspace. And we'll also look at broader efforts to expose and address the PRC's larger surveillance activities that pose a threat to our national security and to our allies and partners. Our approach to China is clear. We are in competition, but we are going to keep our lines of communication open. And uh, we have a very good and clear track record of that. Vedant Patel is the State Department deputy spokesperson speaking with reporters on a telephone conference call today. President Biden planning to travel to Poland, a member of NATO, which borders Ukraine, in the next week and a half to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre giving the details. From February 20th to the 22nd, President Biden will travel to Poland. He will meet with President Duda of Poland to discuss our bilateral cooperation, as well as our collective efforts to support Ukraine and bolster NATO's deterrence. He will also meet with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine, a group of our eastern flank NATO allies, to reaffirm the United States' unwavering support for the security of the alliance. In addition, President Biden will deliver remarks ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, addressing how the United States has rallied the world to support the people of Ukraine as they defend their freedom and democracy and how we will continue to stand with the people of Ukraine for as long as it takes. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre in the White House briefing room. From Great Britain, the newspaper Independent reporting Russia has launched a large-scale missile assault on Ukraine, hitting a number of cities as a military push from Moscow picked up pace in the east of the country. Ukraine has long feared a new offensive by Russian troops ahead of the anniversary of the invasion on February 24th. Back in Washington, also in the White House briefing room, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby asked if the U.S. is seeing any evidence of that offensive. There's been warnings from the Ukrainians as well as intelligence agencies in both Europe and, and here that as the one-year mark of the war approaches, that might be a moment where Putin tries to really escalate the conflict, maybe even launch some sort of major new offensive. Are you seeing any signs of that being in the works? What we see, Jonathan, is that uh, the... Russians continue to conduct offensive operations in the Donbass area. The fighting around Bakhmut remains pretty vicious, even as you and I are talking. Clearly, as we've seen over the last 12 hours, he's willing to continue to barrage the country with cruise missiles, knocking out uh, civilian infrastructure and trying to make life more difficult for the Ukrainian people. Uh, and we do believe that he will try to take advantage of these winter months uh, uh, to restock, resupply, rearm, uh, uh, contribute to his manpower. Um, uh, in um, in what could be offensive, uh, renewed offensive operations come spring. But 
have we seen all that take shape now? I don't believe we're at a point where we've seen all of that really uh, uh, form. But we're anticipating that. And frankly, so are the Ukrainians. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you've seen in just recent weeks the kinds of security assistance packages that, uh, from the United States and from others that are more advanced capabilities, the kinds of capabilities that will allow them to fight in open terrain, uh, combined arms capabilities, armored capabilities, artillery, uh, all of that is designed to help them uh, prepare for whatever the Russians might be planning in the spring. All that's to say, we do expect that, again, as the weather improves, the fighting will probably get more vicious. John Kirby. Strategic Communications Director, National Security Council, with reporters in the White House briefing room. Washington Post reports that oil prices edged up Friday as Russia announced plans to cut its production by 500,000 barrels a day starting next month in retaliation for the price cap the U.S. and Europe are imposing on its fuel exports. This is Washington Today. Federal investigators finding one additional document with classified markings during a search of former Vice President Mike Pence's home in Indiana today. Justice Department conducted the search of that home roughly three weeks after his attorney notified the National Archives. They had discovered about a dozen documents with classified markings there. The search was conducted in cooperation with Mike Pence's team. It lasted about five hours, according to reports. Advisor to Mike Pence, Devin O'Malley, said the investigators removed one document with classified markings and six additional pages without such markings that were not discovered in the initial review by the vice president's counsel. Mike Pence was not present for today's search, but a member of his legal team was. It was on Thursday that Mike Pence was subpoenaed by the Justice Department special counsel investigating not only former President Donald Trump's handling of classified documents found at his home in Florida, but also the former president's role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. Today, President Biden hosting the president of Brazil, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, at the White House after, as The Washington Post reports it, last month's insurrection in Brazil's capital, reminiscent of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by supporters of President Donald Trump. President Biden today talking about democracy. Mr. President, I'm honored to welcome back. Easy. Welcome you back. Great pleasure to have you here. É uma honra receber de volta aqui a Casa Branca. É um grande prazer recebê-lo. Both our nations, strong democracies, have been tested of late, very much tested. Our institutions are put in jeopardy. Nossas duas nações são democracias fortes e foram testadas, duramente testadas e both the United States and Brazil, democracy prevailed. When we spoke in January, I affirmed my commitment to our relationship. And uh, when we spoke about our mutual agendas, they sound very similar. Quando conversamos, eu afirmei o nosso apoio invalável à democracia brasileira. E quando falamos sobre as nossas agendas, pareciam muito semelhantes. I affirm the United States' unwavering support for Brazil's democracy. Eu afirmei o apoio incondicional dos Estados Unidos pela democracia dos Estados Unidos do Brasil. And respect for the free will of the Brazilian people. E o respeito pela livre vontade do povo brasileiro. For the two largest democracies in the hemisphere, Brazil, the United States, stand together. We reject political violence, and we put great value in our democratic institutions. Somos as duas maiores democracias do hemisfério, Brasil e Estados Unidos, se unem em rejeitar a violência política e os ataques às nossas instituições. 
And I believe, as we said at the time, together, that we have to continue to stand up for democracy, for democratic values, that are form the core of our strengths. E como eu falei antes, eu acredito que nós devemos continuar a defender juntos os valores democráticos que constituem o núcleo da nossa força. Not just in our hemisphere, but around the world. And uh, rule of law, freedom and equality, these are the core principles we both believe in. President Joe Biden in the Oval Office with the visiting President of Brazil, President Lula, also making some statements referring to democracy and his predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, who last met a U.S. president when he came in 2018 to visit then-President Donald Trump. You know, Mr. President, that Brazil self-marginalized itself for The former president didn't enjoy to keep international relations with any country. Terminava e começava com a fake news. His world started and ended with fake news. De manhã, de tarde e à noite. In the morning, afternoon and at night. Ele me parece que menosprezava relações internacionais. It seems that he despised international relations. Sounds familiar. E o Brasil é um país que não tem contencioso com ninguém. And Brazil is a country that has no so ever any litigation with any country in the world. Brazil is a country that people enjoy peace, democracy, work, de carnaval, and carnival, de samba, and samba, and, de muita and a lot of joy. This is the Brazil that we're trying to reposition in the world. Os the U.S. represents a lot, has a lot of relations with Brazil. It's a historical relationship, political relationship, economic and a trade, trade relationship. And very much so in the cultural relationship. Now we have some problems, some issues that we have to work together. Primeiro, First of all, nunca mais permitir never more allow que haja um novo capítulo do Capitólio. that there should be a new chapter written again on the Capitol invasion here. E que nunca mais haja o que aconteceu no Brasil. And never more should happen what happened in Brazil. Com a invasão do Congresso Nacional. The invasion of the National Congress. Do Palácio do Presidente e da Suprema Corte. The President's Palace and the Supreme Court building. Brazilian President Lula in the White House Oval Office with President Biden. This is Washington Today. The events of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol in Washington also coming up this week as the architect of the Capitol, Brett Blanton, testified before members of Congress for the first time since an inspector general's report found that he engaged in unethical behavior, including misusing his government-issued vehicle. And as Congressman Brian Stile, chair of the House Administration Committee, questioned him about that vehicle, it came out that Brett Blanton stayed away from the U.S. Capitol building during the January 6th attack. On January 6th, uh, a date obviously uh, of significance here on Capitol Hill, uh, did you utilize uh, your government-issued vehicle to come to the Capitol? I absolutely utilized my government vehicle, and I'm glad to be able to make this point uh, to everybody. That vehicle was served as AOC's mobile command post during the events of January 6th. I was in that vehicle, listening to police radio, 
on my computer and on my phone directing AOC personnel in our support of Congress during that event. But did you drive the vehicle? No, I did not drive the vehicle back. It would have been not prudent to drive the vehicle back because there would have been next to no way to get onto this campus at that time with the number of people that were there. And that actually serves the, that actually demonstrates the purpose of why the vehicles that AOC, the House and Senate Sergeant at Arms have is because they, because we are able to operate remotely and be able to be in command and control of all of our staff because of that vehicle. And that is also why it is prudent that that vehicle exists and the vehicle is with me. Because for example, hypothetically, if I'm at Home Depot and something happens, then I would have to, there would be a delayed response to this, to the Capitol complex. Congressman Brian Stahl, Republican from Wisconsin, chair of the House Administration Committee during Thursday's hearing. Congressman Norma Torres, Democrat from California, followed up on that line of questioning to the architect of the Capitol, Brett Blanton, about what happened on January 6, 2021. There's been a, a lot of talk around um, security and the January 6 um, insurrection. Um, I, I just I want to tell you that um, for every employee that works in this campus, whether they are maintenance people or members of Congress, that was a very difficult day, very, very difficult day, a deadly day. Um, for some of us who were stranded um, on the balcony for 45 minutes, face down, crawling from, mm. from one um, area all the way clear across the area. Um, I am outraged to hear that you were in a comfortable place, sitting whether in your car or in your home, while we were screaming at the one police officer that was near Gallery 3 asking him, to lock the door above us that was wide open after the emergency had been called and after every single one of our colleagues that was down on the floor had already been evacuated. I am outraged that you would be in a comfortable place, sir, while the rest of us were thinking about dying that day and how we were going to come out alive that day outrageous that you were not here. Do you know, sir, that that police officer could not close or lock that door because he did not have the keys to that door? Do you know that? Well, that's news to me. Oh my God. Here we are, two years later. This is all news to you. Um, trying to calm myself down because you bring a lot of anxiety to me. Your inability to do your job brings a lot of anxiety to me. Congresswoman Norma Torres, Democrat from California, and the architect of the Capitol, Brett Blanton, on Thursday. CQ roll call Congress reporter Justin Papp has been covering the House Administration Committee hearing, joining us now live. This revelation about Mr. Blanton not trying to get to the Capitol the day of the January 6th attack, did anyone see that coming, and what has been the fallout? Uh, Yeah, I think that was one of the shocks of that hearing yesterday um he sort of suggested he didn't think he could make it 
into the Capitol complex, which is surprising since the architect is responsible for oversight of the Capitol complex. He is the guy and uh, suggested instead that he used his government-issued car as a mobile command center and worked from there rather than responding. And then you had uh, Representative Torres giving that visceral account of being face down in the gallery. Um, the fallout has been that there's uh, pressure has intensified for Blanton either to step down or be removed. Um, Torres, along with House Administration ranking member uh, Joe Morelli, called for his resignation after the hearing yesterday. And then just this afternoon, uh, the House Republican official Twitter account tweeted out the hashtag fire Blanton. They're putting pressure on President Biden, um, who lawmakers contest is the, the lone person who has power to remove him, uh, to fire him immediately. We'll get to the, the reason for the hearing, the ethics allegations in a moment, but for the architect of the Capitol, how does that person get the job and, and you just said there's only one person that can fire him? How does it all work? There is a question about how he got the job. I don't know the answer to that exactly, but there's uh, a past inspector general uh, said to me that it was surprising because he's not trained as an architect, and normally the architect of the Capitol would be. So there's some confusion about that. There's also confusion about who has authority to discipline an architect because he is presidentially appointed, but he is a legislative branch employee. Uh, I talked to one expert who said that he believes Congress has the power to impeach Blanton, but lawmakers I've spoken to don't seem to think that they do. The chair of the House Administration Committee, Brian Stile, this afternoon told me that uh, he, he won't go so far as to call for Blanton to resign, and he won't go so far as to say that uh, Biden should remove him. But he said Blanton serves uh, at the will of President Biden, and it is ultimately his decision to make. What does the architect of the Capitol do, and how much of that role is security? Um, it's a big part of the role. So one of the chief functions is he is uh, on the Capitol Police Board. He is not a law enforcement officer, which is an important distinction to make given some of the uh, ethics violations alleged, alleged in the report. But he is responsible for the upkeep, the maintenance, and the security of the Capitol complex. We're talking with CQ Roll Call reporter Justin Papp. As you mentioned, heading into yesterday's hearing, there were already questions about the ethics violations. What are the specifics? A lot of these are related to his use of his government-issued vehicle, which was intended for uh, home-to-work use. Uh, According to the Inspector General report, which was released in October, uh, Mr. Blanton allowed both his wife and his daughter to drive the vehicle sometimes when he was not present. He took the vehicle on road trips as far as South Carolina and Florida. He also allegedly misrepresented himself as a law enforcement officer in an incident where a driver hit the car of his daughter's boyfriend. Blanton allegedly uh, chased that driver to his home and briefly detained him. And police officers who responded to the scene identified Blanton as a law enforcement agent. Uh, He denied that at the hearing. He said it was a mistake on the officer's part. Uh, But those were two of the big allegations against him. Also, he he and his wife uh, allegedly led tours of the Capitol building while it was shut down because of COVID. 
This was the first opportunity for lawmakers to question the architect of the Capitol since that report. Now that the hearing is over, what happens next? Was there any sense from the members how they'll move forward? Yeah, uh, it's tough to say. There's not a lot of precedent for this. which and, and as I alluded to earlier, a fair amount of confusion about who can discipline him. The architect is answerable to the House Administration Committee and the Senate Rules Committee. Um, as I mentioned there's at least two House administration members who are calling on um, Blinton to resign and House Republicans asking for Biden to remove Blinton. Uh, House administration chairman Brian Stile, when I talked to him earlier, like I said, he won't go so far as to call for his resignation um, or for Biden to remove him. Senator Amy Klobuchar, who was uh, among a group of six lawmakers in November immediately after the report was released, who called for Blanton to resign, has introduced legislation just on January 26th that would establish a process for Congress to remove an architect of the Capitol. Um, Whether or not that will gain traction kind of remains unclear. Justin Papp covers Congress for a CQ Roll Call. You can find his stories at rollcall.com. And on Twitter, it's at JustinJPapp1. Thank you very much. Thank you. Washington Today continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app. The National Governors Association holding its winter meeting in Washington, D.C. And today, President Biden inviting the governors to the White House. The president telling them, I think the success for all of us, Democrats and Republicans, is in part going to be measured by not what else we get done or pass, but whether we're able to implement what we've already done. And he mentioned the Infrastructure Bill and the Chips and Science Act as examples. The president also talking about projects in which the White House and the governors have worked together, such as vaccinations, infrastructure, and mental health challenges, And he talked about the federal budget negotiations he's having with House Republicans, Republicans that want to couple a debt limit increase to spending cuts. It sounds like there's some discussion to take defense spending off the table, so we can't discuss that. And if you do that, you're left to cut nothing much but programs. But, you know, we can cut an awful lot by just doing what we already passed. You know, the fact is that... uh, I know a lot of you aren't that crazy about the the legislation we passed that allows Medicare to negotiate for drug prices. Well, guess what? That's going to reduce the federal debt. That's going to reduce the federal debt. Billions of dollars. $247 billion reduction in the debt by doing it. And it's going to reduce the prices. Why? Medicare had to pay, you're going to have to pay $240 billion less. And people are going to get the drugs they need that they can afford. 
So it's not that we're, that we're in a position where we're saying we're not going to cut the deficit. There's an example, a quarter of a billion, a trillion dollars. So that's not bad for a start. But my point is this. I believe we can be fiscally responsible without threatening our country or dealing with any chaos. You know, 25 percent of the entire national debt that was accumulated over 200 years occurred over the previous four years. It increased the national debt over 200 years of accumulated debt by 25 percent the previous four years before we came into office. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, and now there's talk, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think my colleagues are really serious about it. I hope they're not, about holding the debt hostage to cuts they want to make in certain things that I may or may not want to make. And uh, we've never reneged on our debt. President Biden at the White House, a roundtable discussion with state and territorial governors, part of the National Governors Association winter meeting in Washington, D.C. White House today announcing that the White House Communications Director, Kate Bedingfield, will be leaving. She's been there since the start of the administration. She'll leave at the end of this month, replaced by Ben LaBolt, who has, what the White House says, uh, experience serving on three presidential campaigns and head of communications for the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and now a communications and marketing agency leader, a place that has over 200 staff and offices across the country. One governor who was not in the room with the president at the White House was Kim Reynolds, Republican from Iowa. At the time the president was speaking, she was being interviewed at the Cato Institute in Washington about her approach to governing. Here's Cato's Fiscal Studies Chair Chris Edwards asking Governor Reynolds about Iowa's budget and tax policy, comparing it to a nearby state. I was looking at uh, a map the other day. You, you, uh, Iowa's got six uh, neighbors. On the one side, you've got South Dakota, a no-income tax state, very competitive. If you look at the data, they've got strong in-migration. Then on the other side, you've got Illinois, probably the worst fiscally run state in the nation. The difference between Iowa and Illinois in terms of basic fiscal metrics is kind of amazing. Uh, Iowa's got AAA bond rating, low debt, low pension, uh, low unfunded pension. Uh, Illinois has got a uh, very low credit rating, high debt, high, uh, high unfunded pension. What, is, what accounts for that difference? Is it sort of, well, like, is it just that different fiscal cultures have grown up over time or what, what do you attribute? I think it's just a philosophy too. I mean, we're a right to work state. I don't know if you said that. Also, they're not. Um, so a lot of differences. I was just meeting with a potential um, investor in the state of Iowa this week. We're hoping to land them. I think Illinois is my competition. And honestly, after walking through all of the differences that you just laid out, the last thing I said is I'm fairly certain that we'll be able to honor uh, the incentive package that we put together, and I'm not sure Illinois can even honor the pension program for the teachers and the state employees that are currently working in that state. So, you know, they might be able to offer the moon, whether they'll be able to actually deliver is something that you need to consider. So, you know, I just... Um, it's kind of who we are as a state, I think. I don't know. You know, they just have philosoph philosophical difference. It really is. I think Iowans know better what to do with their money uh, than government. And we continue to see growth in government over there. And they believe that they have all the answers and we don't. And when you really, um, you know, let Iowans decide what they're going to do with their money. We see communities flourish. We see the state flourish. We see revenues grow. So it's it, it, it works. 
Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, Republican at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. today. C-SPAN covered it. You can find the full hour-long event at our website, cspan.org. Wall Street today, the Dow up 169, NASDAQ down 71, S&P up 8. Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York, writes the Washington Post, claimed in a television interview Thursday that Senator Kirsten Sinema, independent from Arizona, offered him words of encouragement shortly after he was rebuked by Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, for seeking out a prominent place on the House floor ahead of President Biden's State of the Union address on Tuesday. On Friday, a spokeswoman for Senator Sinema said the episode never happened. The spokeswoman, Hannah Hurley, said in an email, I know this is shocking. Kirsten did not speak to him. Here's Congressman Santos in that Thursday interview on Newsmax. Kirsten Cinema, as she was walking by the senator from Arizona, she said something to the effects of hang in there, buddy, or something like that. I said, thank you, thank you, uh, Madam Senator. She was very polite, very kind-hearted, as, as I've learned to, to, to see her. Uh, she's a good person, unlike Mr. Romney, who thinks he's above it all and is in a whole, whole almighty white horse trying to talk to us down on morality. The reality is he's always been a prejudice, he's always has prejudice towards minority. He had it in his 20s. 2012 election, and that is why he didn't become president when he absolutely had the opportunity to become president. And that's why I was very clear when I said on Twitter, you will never be president because you would never represent all Americans. Congressman George Santos on Newsmax. He is facing questions about lying about his past and some campaign finance irregularities, some of these subject to a House ethics investigation. Congressman Santos telling Newsmax he's looking to continue to work for constituents. A lot of people have opinions and a lot of people want to say a lot of things. Here's, here's the reality. I'm human. I've made mistakes. I've made peace with those mistakes and I've come clean on those mistakes. Um, I thought we were the nation and the country of, you know, repent and ask for forgiveness and move forward. The problem is the media fanfare around me continues to spiral. Meanwhile, I'm in my office, I'm taking meetings, I'm answering constituent calls, and I'm signing on to a a litany of um, bills on the House, and we're writing bills out of my office already that are sitting with ledge counsel. So as everybody must be wondering at home if I'm getting things done, you betcha we're getting things done, and we're pretty proud of the work we're putting forward. I was was hired by the 142,000 people who elected me to deliver on a conservative agenda, and that's exactly what I'm doing. And you can expect to see nothing but conservative policy coming out of my office while the media spirals out of control. Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York, in a Newsmax TV interview from Thursday. Also on Thursday, another new member of Congress, Robert Garcia, Democrat from California, telling reporters that he and some other new members are introducing a resolution to expel Congressman Santos. Just a few minutes ago, uh, we filed uh, in the House floor uh, an expulsion of uh, George Santos, of Congressman Santos. Um, It's really important for us to recognize that George Santos is uh, a fraud, a liar. He has lied about the most horrific shooting in in LGBTQ modern history, the Pulse nightclub shooting. He's lied about 9-11. He's lied about the Holocaust. He's lied about his education. He's lied about his career. Uh, And as we all know, just recently, he's been now given classified access to important information and classified information that he should not have. Uh, There's been numerous Republicans that have called for his uh, expulsion or a resignation from Congress. 
Uh, I want to also note that uh, today myself and the two other freshman members that are LGBTQ, uh, Congresswoman Becca Ballant, uh, Congressman Eric Sorensen, have been talking about this uh, expulsion resolution uh, to get George Santos out of Congress. In addition to that, uh, two other members have been leading efforts uh, to really take on uh, George Santos. And of course, that has been Congressman Dan Goldman, who's also a freshman, and Congressman Richie Torres. Uh, and they have been leading efforts as well with the House Ethics Committee. And so those have been things that have been really, really important for us, uh, particularly as freshmen and their leadership. And so again, uh, we have filed an official expulsion resolution with the House Ethics Committee uh, to get rid of George Santos. Uh, it is time for him to go. We gave him plenty of time to resign, and he has chosen not to do so. Congressman Robert Garcia, Democrat from California, on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building on Thursday. The U.S. Constitution requires a two-thirds vote of U.S. House members to expel a member. This has happened five times in U.S. history, the last time in 2002. CNN reports the Federal Election Commission sent a letter to Congressman Santos ordering him to officially declare that he's running for re-election in 2024 after he raised enough money following the midterm elections in November to trigger filing requirements. He has until March 14th to comply. The story from the Daily Beast, hours after the White House announced that a Super Bowl Sunday interview had been scrapped by the parent company of Fox News, Fox Corp reversed course and stated that the interview was back on. After the White House reached out to Fox Soul Thursday evening, there was some initial confusion. Fox Soul looks forward to interviewing the president for Super Bowl Sunday, a Fox Corporation spokesman told the Daily Beast. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on Friday morning claimed that Fox Corporation, the parent company of Fox News, had scrapped a Super Bowl Sunday interview with President Biden. Fox News, meanwhile, claimed the White House turned down an interview with one of its anchors. That all from the Daily Beast. Well, ahead of the Super Bowl on Sunday, some politicians from the home states of the two teams competing for the National Football League Championship, Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles, showing they're willing to back up rooting for their hometown favorites with some bets. Here's Missouri Governor Mike Parston on the video. Hey, it's a great week in Missouri. It's Super Bowl week, and what exciting week for the Kansas City Chiefs and the kingdom. Uh, we're looking forward to it here at the state capitol. And for me, it's a special year because it's the 57th Super Bowl and I'm the 57th governor. So I got a little friendly wager with the governor of Pennsylvania. And that wager is we're going to take uh, Kansas City Chiefs flags down there and some Philadelphia Eagle flags uh, on Saturday. And we're going to exchange them and autograph each one of them. And the loser is going to fly the other flag in their state capitol uh, once the Super Bowl is over. So I look forward to Governor Shapiro flying the Kansas City Chiefs flags in Pennsylvania. Missouri Governor Mike Parson in that video. Pennsylvania Governor's Josh Shapiro tweeting, looking forward to exchanging flags with Governor Parson in Arizona this weekend, especially looking forward to seeing the Eagles flag hanging in the Missouri Capitol when the birds win on Sunday. Hashtag fly Eagles fly. And Governor Shapiro posting this video. Yo, Pennsylvania, Governor Shapiro here. I'm in my office here in the Capitol the governor's office, this beautiful, ornate office filled with history. I've got William Penn looking down at me there, Ben Franklin on the side. So many things have happened in this office, so much history. And we're about to make some more history in Pennsylvania. I couldn't be more excited to be able to wear one of these in February. Fly, Eagles, fly. Governor Shapiro holding up a jersey. 
Also, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver of Missouri making a bet on the Super Bowl with Congressman Dwight Evans of Pennsylvania. It's Kansas City barbecue against Philly cheesesteaks. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. 